0: The more to arahato go at or a hator, some ma, some would have sung. The more to sab, go at or a to sab, go at or a hator, some a number of times recently in conversation with various people it's come up that in relation to that verse we have in our chanting "Dhamma and I am a servant of the Dhamma or a servant of the Buddha or a servant of the Sangha those of you who have uh, been around for a while or recognised in the morning chanting this is something that we recite and how helpful this approach or this disposition can be. We're considering the kind of effort we make in practice. Is it the effort of somebody who is trying to master the meditation technique or master the practice or become a master and if so if we have such a feeling about our practice what is the effect of that or is it more the case as we recite in our chanting there I am a servant of the Buddha a servant of the Dhamma, a servant of the Triple Gem. How does that feel? Personally, I feel more drawn to the disposition of a servant, but I confess it wasn't always that way. I, I do recall vividly. Uh, being on Winter Retreat in 1991, this became very apparent to me how I was strung out with anticipation, not pleasant anticipation, but anxious anticipation, about my new posting as leader of the community at Harnam here. I'd been invited by Lumpur Sumater to uh, take over uh, leading the community here and I do remember sitting on that retreat really stressed out, worrying, frankly. How am I going to handle Hana? They got that big building project on, this Dummer Hall wasn't finished then. There was just a concrete floor and a great big hole here behind us, opening up to the rural Northumberland. And then there were issues with the neighbors. How am I going to handle the issues with the neighbors? How am I going to handle the cold, barren hills of Northumberland? I come from an island in the South Pacific. How am I going to handle those frightening trustees? I mean, really intimidating. And, and this was occupying my hours of meditation, I confess, and and it wasn't comfortable. But then, one way or another, it dawned on me this verse that we recite in our morning chanting yeah. I am a servant of the Buddha I am a servant of the Dhamma and, and somehow I heard that in a new way and sometimes it works like that we, we might be rabbiting off these Pali verses for years until one day we actually hear it and that's a great thing when that happens well on this occasion for whatever reason uh, I managed to hear what I was saying and it really clicked. It, it fitted. That felt good. On the heart level, that's what I really want. I want to be a servant of Dhamma, a servant of reality. I want to serve truth. I want to serve actuality in the moment. Mm. Now, we can think of serving the Buddha or serving the Dhamma, serving the Sangha and on the level of a form. Yeah, we can... What does it mean to be a good Buddhist? What does it mean to serve the Dhamma and study the books and uh, be able to recite the suttas and and be a good monk and serve the Sangha? We can think of it on terms of the form, but uh, I'm sure all of us are aware that, ideally anyway, that the forms of this teaching are there to serve the spirit. And on the spiritual level, What is the Buddha? The Buddha is that quality of consciousness, that quality of knowing, that quality of awareness that is utterly unobstructed. Unobstructed knowing. Irreversibly unobstructed knowing. The Buddha's realisation meant that all inclinations towards distortion of consciousness all conceit, all ignorance was thoroughly removed. It just wasn't possible. There was a, a recognizing, a remembering of the potential that human beings have for living out of such a quality of awareness. And, and from that purified realization, it wasn't possible for any greed, hatred, or delusion to arise. And that's the Buddha, that quality of consciousness. Yeah, Yeah, I want to serve that. That's what I bow down to. The dhamma. The level of form we can, yes, as a saying, we can think about all the books that we might need to read and feel like we have to understand and maybe memorize. That's, yes, important. And we would obviously show due respect to the forms. Keep the dhamma books in in a suitable place. But the spirit of Dhamma is actuality itself the reality of this moment yeah. practicing Dhamma surely means making the effort to incline towards that abiding as awareness itself as knowingness itself the Buddha seeing the Dhamma is consciousness being at one with what is awareness freely freely sensitively, accurately perceiving what's happening in this moment, It's the Buddha seeing Dhamma yeah. our commitment to practice is then surely making the effort to incline in that direction well, I find that very attractive and that puts all that other stuff about worrying about how I'm going to handle harm yeah. to one side doesn't disappear, but it makes it much more workable. And, and really, what I came to recognise was this mindset of how am I going to handle and How am I going to handle my responsibilities as an abbot? Nobody ever taught me how to be an abbot. We don't go to abbot college and get taught how to do this thing. So. But really, that mind state was how am I going to handle Was How am I going to control Harnum? That's what it was about. How am I going to control the neighbours? How am I going to control, keep in control of the building projects? And that, of course, is the attitude of the unawakened, deluded personality. That's what deluded ego loves is controlling. That's what it's trained to do. That's what it enjoys is controlling. And then, as all of us would. Know that when we feel like we're out of control, we freak out. That's where anxiety comes in. That's not reality's problem. That's the fact that we're misidentified. The Buddha never had a problem with reality, so there's no problem with reality. It's not like there's some inherent problem with reality. If there was, the Buddha could never have become the Buddha. The issue is we identify with that which is unreality. We try to make permanent that which is impermanent. We try to make satisfactory that which is unsatisfactory. We try to make self that which is not self. And that misalignment with reality is being a servant to the world. As a servant to Dhamma, we are interested in letting go of that. Mm. Letting go of that misperception. Mm withdrawing our heart energy from that so we're no longer invested, we're no longer committed to feeding that momentum. Mm. From the disposition of a servant, we have the impetus to do whatever it is we need to do so that letting go happens. We recognise that serving reality means not clinging. A servant of reality, a servant of truth, is doing whatever we need to do so that we accord with truth. Clinging is not according to truth. Upadana is the opposite of according with Dhamma. And when I look back in my own practice, I recognize that uh, despite some evidence as to the futility of trying to control everything, including my practice, despite some evidence, uh, to the contrary, that momentum of trying to control was driving most things. I really feel sorry for anybody who had to live with me the first 12 years, 14 years, or whatever it was, a big chunk of time, I spend a lot of my time now apologising to people who had to live with me in those days. Uh, Ajahn Chantapala very graciously always says, oh, I didn't notice. I noticed. And even though we may have some degree of insight or some intuition as to the futility of clinging and trying to control and the, the drama that deluded ego gets up to, even though we may have some perspective on that, the momentum of clinging doesn't necessarily cease as I was saying last week for some being it seems it does cease completely Uh, but for many even though there can be some valid opening that's not so seriously clouded by distortions some insight it doesn't mean to say that the habits will fall away what I referred to last week as the the rip current that I nearly drowned in and when I was swimming off the west coast of the North Island of New Zealand yeah. Yeah. if we don't understand if we haven't studied, if we haven't come to recognise, we don't get the signs of what's going on yeah. we don't see that we're about to be born again into becoming something somebody, doing something to get somewhere yeah. the familiarity of being somebody doing something to get somewhere it's like that, it's a it feels familiar, and until there's sufficient clarity, understanding to recognise, just because it feels familiar and sort of okay on some level, doesn't mean to say that it's worth investing in. In fact, quite the opposite. But like in the, in the Christian tradition, uh, I love that image of the the Israelites leaving the land of enslavement in Egypt, and before they could enter the promised land, they had to spend 40 years in the desert. What a drag that must be. Forty years, not four months, uh, not even four years. uh, Even when we have some intuition or some inclination or even some insight uh, into what it means to serve Dhamma, to serve reality, uh, to make the effort to abide as that just knowing, as that open-hearted, clear-minded awareness. Even if that's what we're drawn towards, it doesn't mean to say it's going to just happen. We don't know how deep our understanding is. And that's uh, the benefit of being able to live with a teacher who's able to point these things out. I think I've spoken before about that occasion where somebody asked Ajahn Chah, how can you see delusion? We can see greed, you know what greed is like, see hatred, you know what that's like, but how do you see delusion? Ajahn Chah's reply was, delusion is not seeing that you're caught up in greed and hatred. And that's why it's so tricky, That's a great blessing if we have good Dhamma friends, especially wise teachers around us, to point out that even though our level of understanding might appear radical from our perspective... We don't necessarily know how deep it goes. Yeah. On that occasion, that uh, that story I related last week of of nearly drowning, and I think I mentioned that I found it very uplifting and, and very inspiring. And although, yes, I was afraid for sure. Yeah. All, all the time growing up in New Zealand, I'd spent in the ocean. Nothing like that had ever happened, and it, it was very dangerous. But what happened was, I had the inclination to surrender to not fight the current which is what usually drowns people this powerful current pulls you out, panic and then drown and something within me meant that I surrendered, turned over, lay on my back and connected with this rhythmic breathing technique which a friend in New Zealand had recently taught me And to do this rhythmic breathing technique, it meant that you had to be completely surrendered, completely relaxed. If you started to control, you sink. And so the experience of being caught up in this current and being dragged out to sea was one of letting go. Impulses in the mind would arise... Oh, my parents are going to be so upset. Ajahn is going to be really angry with me. (laughs) Oh, that Menendo heedlessly getting himself drowned after all that effort I put into helping him. Sharks between here and Australia. What's going to happen to my body? All the images would come into my mind and the impulse would be to fight, to struggle. You've got to save yourself. But when that impulse was dominant, then the relaxed breathing would be obstructed and start to sink. That's not letting go. Fortunately, there was enough momentum to trusting, letting go, that uh, what actually happened was that I was dragged along the beach and out of the danger zone and was able to crawl back up onto the sand again. Really joyous at what had taken place. Yeah. And it was later that I, I stopped to reflect on a conversation I'd had with this Christian monk in Auckland who had been a member of the Mother Teresa community in Saigon in Vietnam during the war. And he'd related to me how in this hospital there were these seriously wounded Vietnamese men who were ostensibly Christians in this Christian hospital. And, and, but he said... Although they said they were Christians, when it came to the crunch, when it came to dying, they invariably reverted back to being Buddhists again. In other words, the religion they were brought up with. Well, I don't know what the, the, uh, the monk was really pointing to, but part of me quietly suspected that he was telling me that you might think that you're a Buddhist getting around with those robes on, but you wait until it comes to the crunch. You'll go back to the faith you were raised in. Well, I certainly didn't mean to get myself caught in such a dangerous situation. I definitely wouldn't advise anybody do anything so heedless as to get caught in a rip current, but to have the evidence of the refuge being sufficiently deep so as to even at that point remember trusting, trusting, and being receptive to what's happening here and now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As far as I can make out, that's the disposition of a servant of Dhamma, you know, being receptive to what's happening here and now. We can't see the Dhamma in the future. We can't see the Dhamma in the past. You know, sanditiko, and as we say in the chanting, to be seen here and now, to cultivate the quality of attention that means we are inclined to accord with, wisely, skilfully, sensitively, what's happening here now. Mm -hmm. So, cultivating such an attitude, uh, establishing that image in the mind, when we bow to the Buddha image, it's a privilege to be a servant of the Buddha. It's a privilege to be able to serve the Triple Gem. But not just on the level of form. Yeah. We can do that, and that does have its place, for sure. Yeah. The form is a, like a conduit for the spirit. Yeah. And it is important that we we remember this in, in all walks of life, you know, not just... Um, In my case, uh, reporting on how that was helpful in terms of taking on a position of abbot in this monastery, Uh, it's true for everybody, everywhere, all of the time. How do I serve reality in this situation? By being present for it. By inhibiting the habits of mind to drift into fantasies of what if this, what if that... Can I handle it? Mm. Well, if we are honest, probably what we're saying is, can I control it? And if we listen carefully, that might be the voice of the one within us that doesn't trust an open-hearted, clear-minded receptivity of what is true. Mm. So we have a choice, and we always have that choice, potentially. And it's worth cultivating that awareness. I would say that particularly in the the realm of religion, there is a... Um, or maybe everywhere, but because I'm in this job, I guess it perhaps I might mean, be more apparent to me, but in the realm of religion, it, it does often seem to be the case that people forget that we started off aligning ourselves with the spirit of the religion, the spiritual life. We wanted the freedom... We might start off being interested in the wisdom and interested in the compassion, but end up paying too much attention to the conventions. Sometimes it happens here in the monastery where we have those brought up in a traditional Buddhist context uh, getting upset because when we light incense, we only light one stick of incense in our monastery. And and maybe in their tradition where they came from you only light one stick of incense for a funeral and, and you have to light three sticks of incense. And, well, that might be all right if you've got open-sided meeting halls with the wind blowing through, but here in Northumberland, we, we keep the doors and windows closed. Yeah. And if we keep lighting three or six or nine or 12 or how many sticks of incense every day, the paintwork gets very grubby very quickly. Yeah. So sometimes I've told these people who complain about our lighting one stick of incense. Uh, Are you interested to come and paint our walls for us? And, well, that doesn't change it. They're not interested. It's very important, as far as I'm concerned, to light three sticks of incense. It means something very special. Well, we can decide that it means something special if we want to, but actually it doesn't mean anything special. That's just a convention. That's a form that, in one context, has got some relevance. But in this context, it doesn't have any relevance... But if we're attached to the forms, you know, we can make a problem out of things. So the ordination ceremony, when somebody becomes a monk or becomes a nun, the, the attention to detail in the ordination ceremony is extraordinary these days. Well, When it's coming from a place of respect and devotion for the tradition, of course that's perfectly appropriate, but sometimes we can get a little compulsive around these things and Ajahn Tiradamo was telling me once how during his ordination as a, as a samanera in Thailand, he'd been living in this monastery in, in Chiang Mai and he wanted to stay there and keep meditating and they told him, well, if you want to stay here and keep meditating, it's better if you put robes on and, and become a novice. So he went along with it. and So to become a samanera, he had to go to this particular monastery where they had permission to do these ordination ceremonies and the way it was practiced was you are introduced to a monk there who basically just tells you say this, say that and so you repeat after the monk. Now in the time of the Buddha you you become a monk Well, you're speaking a language that the Buddha understands. You're saying something that's clearly obviously meant, intended. But once it becomes ritualized uh, we always run the risk of losing the spirit and focusing too much on the form. It's not that there's anything wrong with rituals, it just means that we have to be careful. Now, I'm a great fan of rituals and symbols. We, we can use these uh, in skillful ways to train our hearts in the way that linear logical thought doesn't touch. Mm-hmm. But when we do engage in these rituals and, Ceremonies and traditions, yeah. it's important that we pay attention to the emphasis. Yeah. As a servant of the Dhamma, yeah. we're interested primarily in the spirit of the spiritual life, and the forms are there to serve the spirit. Yeah. My good friend and uh, Barney Shorter, who yeah. has since passed away, but used to live in Edinburgh. And she would point out how when, when the spirit has to serve the form, then the religion has failed. And it's very helpful to remember. And on that occasion of... of uh, well, he was in Ajinturidamo then, uh, but uh, uh, that young Canadian layman taking Samanera ordination at that monastery in, in Chiang Mai, he, he, the, the monk who was accompanying him took him in front of the shrine and said, OK, bowed three times, so Dhamma bowed three times and then the monk says okay, say not more three times uh, obviously referring to the chant not more tasat that we're all familiar with. Ajahn just says okay, not more, not more, not more. <laughs> it was a yeah, little overly simplistic uh, emphasis on the, the ritual there. And yeah. <laughs> As it happened, the, the ordination went uh, thoroughly, properly, eventually. But we can get caught up. Yeah. Well, even getting caught up is, is not a failure. That's practice. That's, if we have an emphasis on the spirit, then, yeah, then when we get caught up, we can learn from that. Yeah. Yeah. So. One of the mistakes, again, we can easily make, that we, we somehow... Attach this idea that we're supposed to be perfect from the beginning. When we're really interested in being a servant, we're interested in learning. Always paying attention to how can we do our job better. If you're a servant of the Buddha, how could I be a better servant of the Buddha? If I'm a servant of the Dhamma, how can I be a better servant of the Dhamma? How could I be more present, more accurate, in the quality of attention that I bring to this activity, whatever this activity is, whatever's happening here and now, how can I bring a more pure quality of attention to this mm-hmm. and not fall prey to our old habits? Yeah. If we do fall prey to our old habits, then we can learn from it. So this is not just an issue that we have as as perhaps the most seriously materialistic uh, human society that the world's ever seen, Uh, also even in the time of the Buddha. This is the characteristic of the unawakened personality. Uh, There's a story in the scriptures that some of you might be familiar with, with Bhikkhu Wakali, who was an elderly bhikkhu who had great devotion, great love, great admiration for the Buddha and but he was very poorly, very sick and uh, the Buddha received word that uh, Bhikkhu Vakali was longing to see the Buddha and so out of compassion the Buddha went to visit him and was inquiring how Vakali how was doing was he managing to deal with the, the rigors of uh, old age and pain and sickness and, and how was his state of mind was he plagued at all with regret and or remorse and Bhikkhu mentioned to the Buddha that yes he was actually plagued with regret and the Buddha inquired was, and it wasn't anything to do with Hakkali's lack of commitment to virtue he regretted that he had never been able to get to see the Buddha and his heart was still possessed with remorse for this. And on this occasion, the, the Buddha instructed him: oh, "You're paying a wrong attention here. You're looking in the wrong direction, luckily so If you want to see the Buddha, you want to see the Dhamma. If you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. Constant theme of the Buddha's teachings: and don't become too distracted by the forms. And similarly, when the Buddha was dying, you know, the Buddha encouraged." those who were around him, who were caught up in grief. If you want to honour my teaching, practice with what's happening right here and now. Don't get caught up. Don't get lost in the way things appear to be. Apparent reality can be very beguiling. So long as we're not truly wise, not truly seeing, not free, then we do over and over again project onto the forms, that which doesn't belong there. So when we suffer, uh, the question, the important question is how long does it take before we remember? We are going to suffer. We are going to forget. Like in judo, everybody gets thrown, but how do you fall and how do you stand up again? That's the question. A good friend of mine, who's uh, the abbot of one of our other branch monasteries, was relating to me this incident recently, where the main Buddha image in their Uposita the Hall had been recently gilded. Some very generous and dedicated supporters of the monastery had come to visit and put a lot of effort, a lot of time into regilding the Buddha image, and um, uh, because. Uh, the Abbot there is a very diligent and caring fellow he He made an announcement to the people he thought needed to know that whatever you do don 't you know don 't go polishing this Buddha image this is not a brass buddha image; this is gilded you, know, you don 't go polishing a gilded Buddha image. However, <laughs> a few days later, he, uh, this Abbot went to uh, went into the opposit hall and uh, very disappointingly, very sadly somebody hadn't heeded his his caution and set about polishing the Buddha images. And so a good portion of the gold had all disappeared. So now he saw a very blotchy Buddha. Uh, well, what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. Go tearing a strip off some young novice or anagārika or visitor to the monastery or... Or do you remember that's the form of the Buddha? That's not the spirit. That's not the Buddha. As a servant of the Buddha, you get down and you bow to the blotchy Buddha image and remember. The images are there to just remind us of the spirit, pointing back to the heart of the matter, which is where, when, and how are we getting pulled into the uh, rip current, the habits, the momentum of me doing something to get somewhere? Yeah. So the same principle, of course, we would all recognize applies to our relationship to meditation techniques. Yeah. We engage these exercises... And aspiring for freedom we have faith, we have confidence trust that it's possible and so we commit ourselves out of respect it's sometimes rather arduous, demanding training it's important that we remember that the forms that these exercises take are just that that to introduce us to the spirit, which is the potential we have for exercising the spiritual faculties. Yeah. You sit there in meditation, completely lost, and being this ignorant me doing something to become enlightened. Well, we might turn into a cold hearted meditation technician, but that could be far from the state of liberation that we were longing for Mm -hmm. now if we're a a servant of the Dhamma and we catch ourselves becoming a dry eyed cold hearted uh, meditation technician hopefully we'll have the agility to adjust and maybe let go or tweak how we're relating to the form so that the heart Warms up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Become more agile in our relationship to the training. A rigid relationship to the training can create more obstructions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somebody recently asked me about my meditation practice and I... I, I commented at the time. I said, "Well, I tried meditation, but it didn't work, and so I don't really believe in it anymore." And <laughs> well, I wasn't totally lying. I mean, there was something about that that was true. But later on, when I got to think about it, I thought, "Well, that was a, a bit heedless of me because you know, if they weren't prepared for what I was saying, they they maybe take that as a fixed position and and." Uh, think that I'm saying there's something wrong with meditation exercises of course I'm not saying that Uh, what I was saying was that uh, as the years have gone by I've recognized that I'm not so interested in the impulse to overcome defilements and get rid of obstructions what I find More interesting, more drawn towards, is the quality of receptivity that exists in any given moment. How receptive is this moment of awareness? Mm. As I was saying in the beginning, the, the effort is one of interest in inclining towards simply knowing, simply being aware, being awareness, which is distinctly different from what I was doing 30 years ago. Those first 12 or 14 years of my practice, yes, I was locked into the momentum of trying to control my practice. And fortunately, conditions conspired whereby I, I learned enough to adjust, to shift the focus of practice and from that point onwards the last 30 years it's been much more rewarding still in recovery, I call myself a recovering control freak recovering from the damage I caused in those first uh, few years so the practice that we Commit ourselves to uh, is the practice that we create. Mm. Mm. It's not like the practice is dictated to us by somebody else. Mm. As servants of the triple gem, as servants of Dhamma, as servants of reality, we are active as the servant to be there in the moment when suffering arises and to be interested in that moment not just defaulting to, oh, I'm a failure because I'm still suffering, or I'm a failure because I haven't got enough access to concentration, or I still have all these preferences, uh, I still like peanut butter, uh, being present for the moment when suffering arises. There's a very lovely uh, recording of a conversation that a support of our monastery was having with Ajahn Chah Uh, just not long before Ajahn Chah uh, wasn't able to speak anymore and got very very ill Uh, it's in the monastery uh, known as Wat Tamsang Pet in northeast of Thailand the the temple of the cave of diamond light inspiring name but actually living there it's very hot and barren and and hard work Not as inspiring as it sounds, but this uh, this teaching that Ajahn Chah gave, uh, recorded, or more or less by accident, that Ajahn Chah had formally recorded a a message to uh, his uh, disciples here in England, uh, Ajahn Sumato and the young community hadn't long been living here, and and Ajahn Chah recorded a very loving, beautiful uh, message of well-wishing. It's it's printed in transcribed and printed somewhere called Message from Thailand. And, and after, this, uh, after this formal message, the tape was left running and Ajahn Chah was talking about the real practice. Mm. buti buttejing. Te yeah. He was talking about what a lot of people think of as practice, which is actually more or less preparation. Yeah. Sitting there still, yeah. concentrating the mind, buddho, 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 holding the attention on the breath. Yeah. That's not the real practice. The real practice, as I think Shai was saying, is in Thai, yeah. when the wild energy impacts on the heart. Are you there for it? That's the real practice. Are you there for it in that moment? It's not sitting there trying to be somebody to get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That has its place. As saying that helps us hone down the spiritual faculties, saddha, virya, sati, samadhi, Panya, these potentials we have. And when these potentials are actualized, they're alive, functional, then in a the moment of suffering, when the untamed energy flares up, yeah. impacts on the heart, and suffering appears, are we there for it? Do we have the presence, do we have the receptivity, do we have the interest mm-hmm. to look into it and recognize the truth of what's happening? Mm-hmm. What are we doing in this moment that's creating suffering about reality? What are we adding to or taking away from what's simply true? Mm-hmm. So I would suggest the contemplation on cultivating the disposition of a, as a servant of reality can help us in, in this regard to help to train the quality of attention, which means we're more likely to be able to accord with what's happening in terms of reality, not just defaulting to stories and fantasies about the past and the future. And when that's happening, well then... There's a chance there'll be harmony. Harmony will be our contribution to the world. So, thank you very much this evening for your attention.